Our scripture passage for this morning comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 5, as we read this morning from verses 30 through 38. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Hear now the word of God. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who has sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths in our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Lord, our souls are hungry and needy. There's nothing that we can feed ourselves. It has to come from you. So would you do that for us this morning, rescuing and caring for our hearts by your word through your spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you please be seated? There are a lot of ways that I think we misunderstand ancient people, but I think perhaps the most common or one of the most common for us as modern people is this misunderstanding that ancient people were gullible or that they easily fell for trickery or lies. Uh, A couple of years ago, I was listening to an atheist on a podcast, and the atheist's name was Richard Carrier. And Richard Carrier was talking about those who lived during the times of the Bible. And I was dumbfounded by something that he said. I'm going to quote from him at this point. He said this, The average person on the street in the first century would be like, Oh, you saw God and he spoke to you. That must be for real. That was the order of things. That's what Richard Carrier says. Now, there's this amazing level of of arrogance, I think, from modern people when we think about first century people. People who lived during the time when this passage was taking place, for example. And, And for some reason, Modern people have somehow convinced themselves that we are the first ones in human history to invent critical thinking. And so this quote from Richard Carrier is just such a reflection of our own modern arrogance and the way we look down on ancient people. You see, the reality of all of this is so very, very different. Think of all the times in the Bible where people hear something and then struggle to believe it. Think of of Genesis chapter 18. In Genesis chapter 18, Sarah, this woman who's not had a child before uh, and is now far beyond childbearing years, hears that she's going to give birth. And her reaction is to laugh. 
right? And there's a reason why she laughed. And the reason why is because she understands that very old women aren't supposed to be able to have babies. She understands that. Um, They weren't fools. They understood nature. They understood the way things worked. Um, You see a similar type of skepticism from Abraham, right? Because Abraham hears that he's going to have a child with Sarah. And he says, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Right? That is his, that's his reaction and her reaction. They very much line up. They represent a worldview of people who know how babies are made. In, uh, in Exodus chapter 4, Moses sees the burning bush. And if you read the text, the thing that draws him to the burning bush is that the bush is not consumed when the fire burns. And so, uh, if I could put it this way, he understood the law of entropy. If you know what the law of entropy is, the law of entropy, well, I'm going to put it terribly. The law of entropy says that energy is expended and it has to go somewhere. And what that means is that this bush should be burning up. This bush should be dead. And yet it's not. What is going on here? Moses understands entropy, even if he doesn't have the word for it. Um, What does Moses say to God? After God says, I'm sending you to speak for me. Moses' reaction is, I'm going to go to these people and I'm going to tell them that God spoke to me and they will laugh in my face. They won't believe that God spoke to me. Well, Richard Carrier says that ancient people were gullible and they believe anybody who said that God spoke to them. Or think of of John chapter 9. Jesus heals the man who's born blind and then the text tells us the Jews came up with an explanation. And their explanation wasn't, hmm, I guess blind people get their sight back. No, instead, John tells us their solution was they didn't believe he had been born blind. They came up with a naturalistic explanation for how this situation could be the way that it is. So you see skepticism as well among Jesus' disciples. What does Thomas say when they tell him that Jesus is alive? Thomas says, unless I see in my hands, in his hands, the marks of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand in his side, I will never believe. He doesn't have the word for this. We call this empiricism. Thomas is an empiricist, whether or not he's heard of of David Hume or or any of these other philosophers and all the fancy things that we have for modern people. Something that we start to see when we look at the Bible is skepticism is not something that was invented nowadays. It's been around for a very long time. And you see, the Bible is a book that's very self-aware. The Bible is deeply self-aware that the claims that are being made within it will be met with skepticism. And that is because people in biblical times were not nearly the dunces that we as arrogant moderns tend to think they were. Now this morning, Jesus has been doing exactly what Richard Carrier said at the beginning that anybody could get away with. He said anybody could just go and say, God, talk to me. And people would just believe it because that was the order of the day. And Jesus, in this passage, is doing what he says everybody should get away with in the ancient world. Jesus tells them that he has heard from God, and he speaks for God, and yet what happens? In Jesus' own words, he says, yet you do not believe in me. Yet you do not believe in me. I say this, so much for Richard Carrier's 
belief that people are really that gullible in the ancient world. They are not. Now notice this, though, and this is so important. Jesus's response or Jesus's expectation is not for his listeners to be what we call fideists. Now, you may not have ever heard the word fideism before or fideist before. Fideism is the belief that we should believe in Christianity without evidence, that we should hear claims being made by God in the Bible and without any critical thinking on our part should accept what is being said without evidence. That's a very rough version of fideism. And Jesus does not expect that. He does not expect that people are going to believe without evidence. Now, by the way, he does say that he could do that. If you look at verse 34, he says, not that the testimony that I receive is from man. In other words, this is God speaking and he could speak and give you no evidence and he would be within his rights. So when God gives you evidence, he's showing kindness. He's being generous to you. He's being gracious to you. Because then the rest of verse 34, he says, but I say these things so that you may be saved. In other words, I would take Jesus as saying, it would be good enough if it was just me testifying because I'm speaking God's words, but I'm going to give you reasons to believe and I'm going to give you arguments because I know that God uses those sorts of things to persuade and change hearts and that's what I want for you. So Jesus doesn't have to give us reasons. He doesn't have to give us arguments. He does not owe those things to us. He could give a bare appeal to his own word and that would be good enough, but he is so kind that he does give us arguments. So look at what he does. He says this to listeners. He says, I'm not only doing what God sent me to do and say, he says, I'm only doing what God sent me to do and say, and and yet you don't have to only take my word for it. And in this passage as a whole, he presents five witnesses who testify to who he is and who he speaks for and who he serves this is the precedent, by the way, in Jewish legal procedure. In Judaism, you, need, you needed independent witnesses. Jesus says this in verse 31. He says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. He doesn't mean his testimony isn't true. He says it's not deemed true. In other words, he's talking about the Jewish legal standard. He realizes that there are standards in Jewish society in terms of witnesses. And see, Jesus knows that anyone could claim to say, claim the things that he says. And so Jesus says, there is another who bears witness about me. And so this morning, we will look at the first three witnesses Jesus calls upon. And then next week, we'll look at the last two witnesses that Jesus appeals to. And here's what I want you to see. This is what I want you to understand this morning. Jesus does not expect you to be a thoughtless robot who doesn't do any thinking for yourself. So let me be very clear. Christianity is a reasonable faith that lines up with reality because it is true. It is a truthful religion. It is a religion that can stand up to scrutiny. And Jesus invites that. He does invite that scrutiny here. Now, on the other side of that, we need to be very careful how we see ourselves. We should not see ourselves as judges of God or juries of God or determiners of truth. But we should also be careful not to believe that if we, if we, if we dig too deep, if we dig too many facts down, 
into the information, somehow that it's all going to fall apart. Because that isn't true. The more you learn the Bible, the more you learn about history, the more you understand the scripture, the deeper you go, the firmer your resolve becomes. Jesus is true. Jesus can stand up to a close examination, as can the evidence that points to him. And so let's look at the three witnesses that he uses to prove who he is this morning. The first witness he goes to is John the Baptist. You see this in verse 33. He says, you sent to John and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his life. Today, people still know who John the Baptist is. Uh, If there was a question on Jeopardy about John the Baptist, I think a lot of the contestants would probably figure out who the guy is. At the same time, I'm not so sure that many of us really comprehend what a larger-than-life person he was during his own day. Think about how he would have appeared and how he did appear to the Jewish people when he came on the scene. He's the first prophet since Malachi. He has broken 400 years of prophetic silence. And then, boom, here he is, the last of the Old Testament prophets. And that's John. And he's dressed like a prophet. He he ate like a prophet. He spoke like a prophet. Everything about him, just you would look at the man and say, this is what a prophet looks like. He had the respect of the people. He even had the ear of the Jewish leadership. Um, At one point, they came and they asked John, who he was, and they offer all sorts of, of possibilities. They say, are you Elijah? Are you the Messiah? They even ask him if he's the Messiah. There almost seems to be this interest from the Jewish leadership early on and an openness to maybe hearing him say that he's the Messiah. But he says, I am not the Christ. I'm not the Messiah. I am a voice crying out in the wilderness. In other words, he told them he wasn't the Messiah. He was a witness, exactly what Jesus calls him to be here. That's why he was born. He was born to be a witness to Jesus. And in this important moment, that's what Jesus calls on him for. He needs him to be his witness right now. Now, I want you to think of this from an apologetic perspective. When I say apologetic, what I don't mean is saying you're sorry Uh, When we talk about apologetics, we're talking about defending the faith. We're talking about explaining the truthfulness of Christianity. And so from an apologetic perspective, think about John's function, right? Jesus considers it to be very important that this man was recognized as a prophet by everybody and then pointed to Jesus and said, follow him. Follow Jesus. He's the Messiah. He's the one whose shoes I'm undeserving to even untie. Follow him. This man that everyone knows is a prophet has pointed at Jesus and said, he is the Messiah. And not only that, but John testified to Jesus to his death, right? Jesus is, or John is in prison and he gives his life with the name of Jesus on his lips. You know, it's one thing when people say they believe something, and it's another thing entirely when they give their life saying that that thing is true. When you look at Christian history, you find that that is actually one of the most profound testimonies to Christ. Uh, One of the examples that comes to my mind is a fellow named Hugh Latimer. 
Hugh Latimer lived in England during the reign of the, the Catholic Queen, Bloody Mary, Tudor. Um, and Hugh Latimer was convicted of preaching the gospel. And he was brought before a Roman Catholic court. And Hugh Latimer said this. He said, I thank God most heartily that he has prolonged my life to this end, that I may glorify God by that kind of death. And then the prosecutor in the trial, the person who is trying him, actually says, if you go to heaven in this faith, then I will never come join you as I am currently persuaded. So it's a really grim thing for this other person to say, if you're going to heaven with the belief you have, then I'm going to hell, is what this other man said. And so Hugh Latimer uh, marched to the stake. He was set set afire along with his friend Nicholas Ridley. And you have perhaps even heard these words from Hugh Latimer before, even if you don't know the name. Because as Hugh Latimer was, let, was, was uh, set on fire, he looked at Nicholas Ridley and he said, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light a candle by God's grace in England, as I trust shall never be put out. Be of good comfort and play the man. See, God's way is to use ordinary men and women to testify to the truth of what they know. John the Baptist was a prophet. But at the end of the day, he was still a mortal man with his own failings and his own sins and his own struggles. And yet Jesus points to John and says, he's a prophet and he knows who I am. He is one of my witnesses and he gave his life testifying to me. Listen to John. So John is Jesus's first witness that he brings forward. Now, the second witness that Jesus points to isn't an individual per se, it's the works of Christ. Now, we actually have that as a standard in the courts as well. Uh, You can't convict somebody for murder without witnesses. And yet in the legal system, we also recognize that physical evidence counts as a witness. And that's sort of what Jesus is doing here. He's pointing to the works that he's done. Listen to how he frames it. He says, the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So he's building upon John the Baptist, this man who broke the silence of God over Israel, this man who embodied really what everyone knew a prophet is and should be. And Jesus says, I have something even better than John's witness, which is saying something. And he points to his works. He says, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Now, I think today in 21st century America, West skeptics are not entirely persuaded by this kind of an argument. If you went to a a skeptic and you said, hey, Jesus did miracles, you should believe in Jesus. (laughs) I think they would not be persuaded by this, at least not immediately. And mainly this is because, and we recognize this, in order to believe that Jesus did these works that he's talking about, we have to believe the people who saw him do them in the first place, right? We are, we are at the mercy of their testimony. We call this an epistemological dilemma. Now, epistem- epistemology just means knowledge. And all that is, means is that we have a knowledge dilemma. It's a dilemma about knowledge. Um, we don't know, the skeptic might say, we don't know that he did these miracles without knowing he did them from someone who saw him do them, right? So there is a chain of custody for our knowledge of the miracles of Jesus. 
And that, that's true, right? We do have a chain of custody. Um, none of us have seen firsthand the miracles of Jesus, not any of the ones that we see in Scripture. However, if we only believe things that we saw firsthand, let's say that's our standard. Let's say, well, okay, I'll only believe something if I set my eyes on it and know that it takes place. But if you do that, you can't live your life. You can't live your life. Because think about this. As people, we are constantly in need of the testimony of other people. All right? If we refuse to believe anything that we didn't see right in front of us, we couldn't convict people of murder. We couldn't read the news. We couldn't even bother reading. We wouldn't even bother reading nonfiction books because we're not seeing the events take place in front of us. We would have no study of history whatsoever. Um, it's not a problem that we rely on the apostles to know about the works of Jesus. Why? Because we're constantly relying on the testimony of other people for our knowledge. The real question that we ask about all eyewitnesses in the world is, can we trust them? Can we trust them? Do they have something to gain by deceiving us? Do they have something to gain by lying to us? Um, Are they in a position to know if what they're saying is true? And in the case of the disciples, their eyewitness testimony is of the highest value. Now, here's why. Every single one of them suffered and died, with the exception of the Apostle Paul, who died of old age. But he suffered greatly in his life. But they all died testifying that Jesus was the Christ, that they had actually seen him risen, that they had actually seen his miracles, and that everything that they taught about him was true. They all went to their deaths saying it. You might say, well, people die all the time with mistaken beliefs. Yes, that's true. That does happen. People do die for things they're mistaken about. However, this is different because it, 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 it's, it isn't like these witnesses heard about it from someone else who heard about it from someone else who heard about it from someone else. The telephone game has not been played here. These apostles gave their lives as direct eyewitnesses. They are direct Eyewitnesses. And John says this in one of his letters. In the letter of First John chapter 1, first three verses, he says, That which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you that which we have seen and heard. So here's here's the strength of what John is saying. Unlike many people who have mistaken beliefs, the apostles know firsthand if it's true. All the apostles knew, without a shadow of a doubt, if Jesus had really done these miracles, and they knew for a fact if the ultimate miracle of Jesus, his resurrection, really happened. And there were skeptics among them, too. This is the interesting thing about this. I keep going back to this, that there, people are not often ready to see a miracle or to think about a miracle or to reflect well upon a miracle. And when you look at the, uh, the apostles, you find that there are skeptics among them as well. And I pointed to Thomas already. What do we think of as Thomas? As soon as you say Thomas, we all think it to ourselves. Doubting Thomas, right? Doubting Thomas. These people were not inclined to believe in Jesus And they were not inclined to believe in the resurrection. And then when they did, it was to their embarrassment later on in retrospect. (laughs) Right? So we have have narrative 
inclusions of things that are embarrassing to the disciples. And yet they're there because they are true. He will always be remembered as doubting Thomas, even though he doesn't doubt anymore. Now he knows. This book does not flatter the people who doubt Jesus, but it does record when it happens. Okay, you might say we have the writings, but anyone could just write a tall tale and try to pass it on to others. But consider this. Do tall tale writers go to their death saying that it's true? Can you imagine J.K. Rowling dying at the stake saying that Harry Potter really happened? It's difficult to conceive of that taking place. Um, What you have when you read the Bible is there is something here. There is an authenticity. There is an honesty to the gospel narratives. Things that are included that that do not make heroes out of the apostles. They don't come out of the narratives looking like heroes. Long lives of admiration and wealth were not waiting on the other side of this testimony of the disciples. Now, don't forget this either. There were 12 of them, and not one of them ever recanted. Not a one of them ever said, okay, okay, stop torturing me. We hid the body of Jesus. Uh, He really did die. He really didn't rise. You can find the body over there. And the reason they couldn't recant was because they couldn't recant. They were eyewitnesses. They knew what they had seen. They knew what they had heard. They knew what they had touched. They knew what they had experienced. They couldn't take it back. And they died saying so. That does make them credible witnesses. They were there, they knew, and they died saying it was true. That is the kind of witness that you take seriously. And we must. So don't let the distance of geography or time keep you from believing in the miracles of Jesus. They are clearly attested to by profound powerful and credible witnesses of the highest order. And so through the witnesses, and and we have firsthand accounts from Matthew and Mark, John, Peter, Jude, and James, we learn of the miracles, and they explain to us at least part of why the crowds chased him so desperately. See, you you can see why the crowds flocked to this man. We see this constant, repeated statement throughout Israel that this man is a healer, this man is a miracle worker. And we also see this even from his enemies. His own enemies testify that he is doing miracles. Because think about what happened even just the last week, two weeks ago, as we were looking at the passage. His enemies testified that he did miracles. Because think about this. It's not in Jesus' enemies' best interest to acknowledge that he does miracles at all. And yet in order to accuse him of breaking the Sabbath... As we saw a few weeks ago, they had to acknowledge that he had done these miracles to begin with. So even even his own enemies acknowledge his miracles so that they can attack him. You see, even from the modern perspective, the miracles of Jesus provide really the only explanation for how this humble carpenter, uneducated in the halls of Jewish academia, um, outside the circles of Jewish leadership, and influence could nonetheless become such a potent attraction to the average Israelite and even to the, to the Jewish leadership. And the explanation Jesus himself gave for these miracles was that he couldn't do these miracles if God wasn't with him. When the Jewish leaders interrogated the man born blind in chapter 9, 
The man looked at them and he said, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. There's a point here. The point is, he did something because God was with him. And that's, that's Jesus' point here. Believe John the Baptist. Even if you don't believe John the Baptist, believe these miracles that point to the truth about me. Jesus says, I am from God. And if I were lying or if it weren't true, then these miracles would not be happening. They wouldn't even be possible. God would prevent a deception from going forth in his own name if it wasn't true. Even from the 21st century, we need to reckon with the miracles of Jesus because they testify to who Jesus is. The third witness that Christ points to is perhaps the greatest, most definitive witness that one could call on, and that's the Father himself. Listen to verses 37 and 38. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Jesus is referring to something, I think, a little more immediate and also something a little more distant. I think there are two levels to Jesus' argument here. I think in the immediate, Jesus is talking about when he was baptized and the Father spoke from heaven. Luke records for us that God spoke out of the cloud and he said, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. So there's this immediate sense in which the Father has testified to him. That's in the short term, but I actually think that Jesus has a better argument here. And I think this is actually the argument he's really making. Jesus' argument goes even further back because he says, you do not have his word abiding in you. When Jesus says that, he's talking about the Old Testament and he's saying the word that God has spoken in the Old Testament, the testimony that God has, that the Father has been given to me all these years, you don't have it in you and that's why you don't believe. He's giving an explanation for why the Pharisees won't believe in him. I think Calvin explains this the best. He probably does it better than me. He says the father witnessed to Jesus constantly throughout the entire Old Testament. It's not like his witness happened for the first time when Jesus was baptized. You see, the father witnessed to Christ every time that he offered the ancient Israelites hope of salvation, hope of restoration, hope of a coming kingdom. Every single time he gave that promise, he was pointing them to Jesus. And Calvin says this. This is how the Jews would have gained an idea about Christ from the prophets before he was manifested in the flesh. What is God doing throughout the Old Testament? He's constantly promising them a Savior's coming, a Savior's coming, a Savior's coming, a greater kingdom is coming. And then in this moment, what happens? Jesus says, don't you know, the Father's testified about me. And if you had his word in your heart, you would believe it and you'd follow me. The entire Old Testament was the Father's testimony to who Jesus would be, which family he would be from, which place he would be born in, when he would be born, what he would be like, how he would live, how he would die, how he would rise, how he would minister. And even after ascending to the Father's right hand, all of these things can be found in the Old Testament scriptures. And so Jesus' argument is if the Pharisees had God's word from the Old Testament abiding in them, they would recognize him from these words. They would recognize him. After Jesus' resurrection, two of his disciples were walking on the road to Emmaus. By the way, very recently, 
uh, it was discovered that the city of Emmaus was actually found. Until, I think, the last year or two, they didn't know where the city of Emmaus was or whether it even really existed outside of Scripture. And they found it. And Jesus appeared to these men as they're walking to the city of Emmaus. And he says, and the text says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. When you read the Old Testament, you're reading the Father's testimony of the Son. You're reading one of the witnesses that Jesus is calling upon here. So don't miss this. God spoke to tell John... And those listening, who Jesus was and is, and they should have listened. But the Father had already been speaking long before that. And that's why the Father is the third witness that Jesus calls this morning. There are more witnesses coming. We'll see them next week, but please remember this. John wrote this gospel so that you would believe in Jesus. He's not a disinterested third party. He's, he's, his interest is very important. His greatest prayer, his greatest desire for you is that you would believe in Jesus. Think about this. The man, John, sitting and writing, parchment in hand. And what is he doing? Across the ocean of time, John has sent this message that he has written for you in this precise moment. There is nothing that you need more and that I need more than faith in Jesus. The point I want to make to you this morning is not that we are the arbiters of truth and we decide what is true and we decide what is not true. We don't get to stand over God and declare what happened and did not happen. The truth is the truth, no matter what our judgment of the matter is, no matter what our preferences are. The point is this, no excuses. You have no excuses for rejecting Jesus. The argument is sound. The testimony of the apostles resounds loudly. The truth of what they saw was sealed by their own blood. These things did not happen hidden in a corner. Jesus is real. He is risen and he is the Savior and he's returning. So the question isn't whether you will approve of him. The question is, will you believe his testimony Will you believe the testimony of his witnesses? Everything John has written here has one purpose, to leave you without excuse, to call you to believe, to confess your sin, to put your faith in it. You see, there's only one thing left to do. For believers, it is this. Be strengthened. Be strengthened by the truthfulness of the word. And for unbelievers, the call is simple. Trust in Christ, believe on his name, and bow the knee. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you know what we need most even before we ask. And we need to know you and believe in your name. Would you use these reminders today to build us up in our faith in your Son? Make us strong in you. Convince us to the core of who we are that this really is true. Because it is. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.